understatement to say how excited, how exciting uh, uh, this is for us, because from the two introductory classes that the Hacham gave us about three to four months ago, um, into the Gaonic Sfaradi approach of our ancestors, we were very, very excited to, to start this series. Um, and what a place to start, Masachat Sanhedrin, Rafaur. Uh, we are very, very grateful for you being here. We've shared the source sheets with the Talmudim um, over the last week or so, and uh, we're really excited to begin. So, Bechavot, the stage is yours. Thank you. So, first of all, it's um, nice to uh, welcome all of you and to see all of you. Um, the form is a little unusual for me, you know, uh, having grown up in physical classrooms and um, having studied uh, with my teachers in physical classrooms, it is a bit um, unusual um, to be teaching in this type of forum. Uh, so we will uh, welcome the opportunity that um, on the one hand, um, we're not physically face-to-face -face, and that creates certain limitations, but on the other hand, there's the opportunity to reach out to a larger audience and I'm very cognizant of that and appreciative of, um, of the fact that um, there's many people who want to study Gemara and who want to understand Gemara in accordance with the traditions of the Hachamim of the Gemara. Um, so let's just dive right in. Um, the assumption that I'm making is that um, you've studied the Mishnah. Um, I will repeat the first sentence of the Mishnah, which is going to be the subject of the Gemara. And I will introduce the ideas gradually in accordance with the text. So let me just explain what's going to happen here. My goal here is not to cover tremendous amounts of text. We're not doing a Daf Yomi class or an Amud Yomi. My goal here is to explain fundamental concepts that would enable each and every one of you in the future to study Gemara independently, right? So I just want you to understand the goal. Our goal is not to finish Masechet Sanedim. It would be great to do so, um, of course. Our goal is not even to finish the first chapter of Sanedim. And again, that would be great to do as well. But rather the goal here is to give you the tools and the methodology that will enable you to understand um, if I come from Brooklyn, New York, what the heck is going on here? Okay, I'm just going to use that, uh, uh, you know, uh, more coarse type of language uh, to express that thought, because I think oftentimes people really don't fully understand what's happening in the Talmudic text. So let's dive right in. Okay, I'm going to read the first sentence of the Mishnah. Again, I understand that you 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 have your gemariot, uh, your photocopies. The Mishnah starts with Dine Mamonot Bishlosha. And by the way, I will believe that give an introduction to Masechet Sanedrin. I intentionally don't want to do it this class. My goal this class is to dive right into the Gemara. So it's not that there is no importance in giving an introduction. What is Masechet Sanedrin about? But I really want to give each of you a flavor of what the Gemara is about, which is why I'm skipping the introduction to Masechet Sanedrin and going right into the text. So again, um, I'm reading it, um, and please follow along. Dine mamonot bishlosha, gezelot v'chavalot bishlosha. Okay, that's the first. And by the way, when we used to read Gemara, this is again, uh, perhaps another discussion. We used to have particular ta'amim, we used to have particular melody uh, where we would read the Gemara and then we would recite the Gemara, recite the Gemara out there. So that's, the, that's that melody that I just chose. Dine mamonot bishlosha. In Judaism, there's uh, dinema monot and there's uh, dinene fashot. 
dinema monot are um, judicial proceedings that pertain to financial matters, dinema monot. Dinene fashot are judicial proceedings where there is uh, a potential um, capital crime and potential uh, death penalty. So the Mishnah right now is telling us that the number of dayanim that you need to have in a judicial proceeding pertaining to mamonot is three. The Mishnah continues. Gezelot v'havalot bishlosha. And the number of people that you need to have in a proceeding involving gazelot, robbery, armed robbery, forced robbery, havalot, havalot is um, injury, some sort of personal injury, and we'll, we'll explain these things later, requires three judges. Okay, now, if you're reading this Mishnah and you just read this first clause, you immediately become aware of what appears to be sloppy editing. The Mishnah seems to be sloppy. It starts by saying, So we know that proceedings that involve financial matters require three judges. And uh, proceedings that involve gezelot, robbery, which itself is a financial matter, Havalot, which is personal injury, which itself is a financial matter, requires three judges. So it's not clear why the Mishnah was phrased in this way. And this is going to be the subject matter of the first sugya, which is to say that the first sugya is going to deal purely with the textual matter, with the textual issue, right? And let's read the first words of the first sugya, which introduces the subject matter, and it is as follows. So please turn the page, go to the Gemara, and it says as follows. The Gemara, aware of what appears to be sloppy editing, asks the question, Atu, do you mean to say that gezelot v'chavalot, proceedings involving robbery, proceedings involving personal injury, are not encompassed within the larger category of dinema monot, right? Because, now, let, let, me, let me explain to you what this is about. Because in order to understand the question, you need to be aware of the following. When Rabbeinu HaKadosh and his court edited the Mishnah, they started with a huge mass of information. And they had a very particular goal. The goal was to take this huge mass of information and to organize it thematically, according to subject matter. But there was another goal. And the other goal is that when they organize this huge mass of information thematically, they do so in a condensed manner, meaning to choose as few words as possible. Now, when they went about to achieve this goal, there are many cases in the Mishnah where 
something could have been expressed clearly and more uh, in a way that would be easier to comprehend, but it would require more words or use less words and create confusion. And the question is, what would Rabbeinu HaKadosh do in that case? Again, the question, I'm, I'm presenting the question again. You have an opportunity to express an idea more clearly, but you would be adding words. Or you can express the idea in a way that's potentially, potentially confusing, not as clear, but less words. And the answer, and my father discusses this in chapter four of the Golden Doves, which you're, you're all welcome to read. Um, the answer is always use the fewest number of words possible. So in the Mishnah, when you're reading the text of the Mishnah, you must understand that strategy. And when you understand that strategy, now you understand the question of the Gemara, because if you don't understand that strategy, then you look at the Mishnah, you say, that's kind of a general statement. And, you know, it's uh, giving us examples of and why is that even a, why is that even an issue for discussion? That's just, you know, that's, that's the way, <laughs> that's the way authors write, uh, write about different topics. So the Gemara is very particular and it's not going to accept that particular approach, right? Because it's, it, it's, 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 it's an approach that would assume that the Rabbeinu HaKadosh is going to use a lot of words here or additional words. And we don't allow for that particular um, understanding of the Mishnah. The text of the Mishnah will always, um, will, will, we, will always prefer, will always prefer to use the smallest amount of words possible. Okay, that's, that's the idea. Now, um, I, I will explain in a future class perhaps why that was a strategy, but for now, just accept that was a strategy. Okay, so now let's read the question again. Ah, tu gezelot v'chabalot lav dine mamonot ninhu. So, am I to understand from the fact that there are two things in the Mishnah? There is dine mamonot, and there is gezelot v'chabalot. Am I to understand that these two things are exclusive? So if I had like a, um, if I had a Venn diagram, one, Venn, one, one circle would have the words, the other circle would have the words, am I to understand that this is conceptually how these two um, phrases are to be understood as somehow exclusive from each other, right? So that's gonna be the subject matter of the, of the, of the sugya. This first sugya will deal with that question. Now that you understand what the subject matter of the sugya is going to be, um, I'm going to tell you the structure of the sugya. This is called the sugya meshuleshet. Sugya meshuleshet means that this sugya has three main parts. Now the purpose of the sugya, of the um, structure of, of the sugya, is to act as a sort of roadmap. So when you study the sugya, you always understand where you are and where you're going to, right? So I'm going to give you now the structure. I'm going to give you kind of the map of the sugya, right? No, no, no content, right? Just very, very basic structure so that you see it. And then we'll dive into the sugya itself, okay? So the, there's three parts of the sugya. The first part of the sugya will address the question that was raised how this question was addressed in the yeshiva of Rabbi Abhu in Caesarea. Rabbi Abhu 
was the Rosh Hashiva in Caesarea in the days of the Roman occupation of uh, Israel. And he took a particular approach to the question raised. That's part one. Part one of the sugya itself has three subparts, right? Each one of the subparts will look at the uh, what Rabbi Abhu did with this problem, how he how he dealt with it in his yeshiva, and um, from a slightly different perspective, right? The three subparts will complement each other; they're complementary. All right. So that's the again the first major part is how did Rabbi Abhu studied this um, problem, how he studied the interpretation of the Mishnah in his uh, yeshiva in Caesarea. Part two of the sugya will offer the explanation of Brava in Yeshivat from Bedita. Yeshivat from Bedita was um, um, uh, in Babel, and there was two major yeshivot in Babel. There was Sura, and there was Nehar De'ah, then Nehar De'ah was destroyed, and in its place came Yeshivat from Bedita. So we're gonna be looking at how Yeshivat from Bedita approached the question as to the text of the Mishnah, differently than how it was approached in um, Caesarea. So those are the first two parts. The second part also has three um, subparts. So we'll see that. And finally, the third part of the uh, sugya, Halekimel, is gonna deal with the halakha. Okay, so now, you know, you explained the Mishnah to me, you gave us different approaches, two different approaches to understand the Mishnah. Give us how do we deal with this matter? What was the practice in the Jewish courts? And that's going to be the third part of the sugya. So you all see very clearly the sugya. It's all very clear. Again, you start out with the textual problem. Why does the Mishnah say, implying that these are exclusive ideas, where in fact, intuitively, we understand that is actually a subcategory of and it's not different than Dinema Monot. That's the problem. We're going to see the answer of Rabbi Abu, how he studied it in his yeshiva. We're going to see the answer of Rabbah several generations later, how he studied it in his yeshiva. And then finally, we're going to have a Pesach Halakha dealing with Halakha Lema'aseh. What do we do Halakha Lema'aseh? Meaning separate from the textual problem, of course, the Gemara also wants to well, it wants to interpret the Mishnah, it wants to explain the Mishnah, but it also wants to give us Halakha Lema'aseh, how to make Pesach Halakha. Okay? So up to this point, I'm now going to do something that I usually don't do in Gemara classes. I'm going to look at the chat and see if there's anything here. Uh, ah, right, thank you. Okay, and in a future occasion, I will explain a little more about why that was the strategy that the Benu HaKadosh employed. But now you have a very clear, that the question makes a lot of sense. Now that you understand the strategy, the question makes sense, okay? So now I want to go into Helek Aleph. Helek Aleph is part one. And by the way, at the end of this, at the end of the series of classes on Sugya number one, I will give you um, some material which summarizes everything. Okay, but I don't wanna give you that material right now. I just kind of wanna, you know, I wanna take you through the Sugya step by step and then we'll tie it all together for you. Okay, so we are now going to do, we are now entering the Yeshiva of Rabbi Abhu in Caesarea, and we're going to see how he dealt with the Mishnah. Now, I have to tell you that Rabbi Abhu, he, he, he was a very important figure um, in Jewish history, 
in so much as not only was he the Rosh Yeshiva in Caesarea, uh, but actually the reason the Yeshiva was in Caesarea, because originally it was in Tiberias. So just to give you a little uh, background, the Biohanan was the Rosh Yeshiva in Tiberias, and the Yeshiva was in Tiberias. But then the Rabbi Avu, who was the one of the most prominent Talmidim of Rabbi Yohanan, so let's say second, third generation in Moraim, he moved it to Caesarea, and there was a reason for that. Um, and the reason is that Rabbi Avu himself was politically connected with Roman authority. So the Roman proconsul, the local Roman government in Israel was located in Caesarea, and Rabbi Avu who was very active politically, right? And this is important to know, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you on um, why Rabbi Avu, or, or what qualities did he have that enabled him to be active politically and successful. And this ties into the sugya. So I'm giving you this introduction um, about, or this background about Rabbi Avu, which is actually important to understanding the sugya. So Rabbi Avu himself, he had three qualities that enabled him to be a very successful politician. Number one, the Yerushalmi and Masef and Megillah says, yada, um, leshon hachamim, leshon He knew how to speak. He knew the rhetoric of the Goyim. Right? So oftentimes you hear politicians speaking, and there's sometimes there are debates, and, um, and, and there's a certain way to present your case, perhaps to be a little understated, you know, not to be overly dramatic, not to overly emphasize, right? So that's Leshon Chokma. He knew the rhetoric of the Goyim. Second quality, he was an expert in the language of the Goyim. The Gemaran Yerushalmi Yevamot says he knew Leshon Yevanit. He knew the, the local language that the political establishment spoke. He knew their language very well. And finally, the Gemara actually says that Haya he was very handsome. So the Gemara says that Rabbi Abhu was as handsome as uh, Yaakov. You know, this is in, uh, in Baba Messia. The Gemara discusses that. Rabbi Abhu was very handsome. And, and finally, and actually this is perhaps uh, as important. So I said three qualities, actually four qualities. He was very wealthy. So he was a very wealthy person. He was very well-spoken. He was very handsome. And because of that, he was able to use this political influence in his relationships with the uh, uh, Roman authorities to help the Jewish people in Israel. And he did so very effectively. So this is um, Rabbi Avhu, and that's why he moved the yeshiva from Tiberias to Caesarea, right? So now you see where you are and what's happening. Okay, so let's look at the content of what Rabbi Avhu says, and here it is. There's three words, three words to explain what um, the relationship is between the words gezelot v'chavalot and mahen katane, and the Gemara elaborates. Mahen dinemamonot gezelot v'chavalot. Okay. The Gemara says, explaining the words of Rabbi Yahu, what is meant by the phrase dinema monot? The Mishnah said dinema monot bishlosha. What does dinema monot mean there? Gezelot vachavalot. It means gezelot vachavalot. 
but it doesn't include other types of financial matters. Dinema monot includes specifically gezelot but it excludes hodaot I'll explain what those uh, things mean. So what does that mean? I don't understand. What does it mean? katane? Is there some sort of analogous thing that we can think about in the English language? Right? And there is actually. That's why it's a question. <laughs> so uh, sometimes in English, uh, you have a you use a general phrase and then you use the initials IE. What do the initials IE mean? Does anybody uh, wish to uh, uh, give the the meaning of IE? Or, or 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 perhaps I'll put it another way. What's the difference between IE and EG? Okay. IE, of course, in, in English, um, uh, the two letters IE, it, uh, they're both abbreviations of, uh, um, of, of Latin phrases. Uh, in the case of IE, it's id est. I don't speak Latin, so I'm not going to pretend like I do. Um, but in English, it means that is, right? Um, so, for example, I may say, um, if, if I'm a doctor I'm, I, I, and you come to me and you say, I have a cough. So um, I can tell you, you know, the cough you have is just gonna last for a short uh, period of time. And then I quickly clarify myself. I say that is, i.e. three to five days, right? So this is um, very common in English, that is. What does EG mean? EG means, for example, right? So what's the difference between that is and for example, so if you said dinema monot, you could have theoretically said is an example of you can say that it would make the Mishnah a bit you know verbose for our taste but it's it, 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 it would be a possible reading of the text but that would be incorrect the Chidush of Rabbi Avhu is that the words which you intuitively would think is a general category financial matters or proceedings related to financial matters. No, that is Gezelot v'chavalot. So therefore, if you look at the Mishnah, Dinema monot bishlosha, Gezelot v'chavalot bishlosha. The word that is, is implied in the sentence, right? Um, I know that to us, this may seem a little odd, but you know, uh, for example, when you're write a contract. There are many implied terms in the contract. When you speak any language, there's oftentimes implied terms in the language. But I want to give you an example from this week's perasha. Um, so this week's perasha starts with the um, starts with the pasuk, ele toledot Yitzchak ben Abraham, Abraham olidit Yitzchak. Right now, if you look at the Rabbeinu Sadiaga on there, he he uses a word, sharach toledot ishak ben Avram. I don't remember the Arabic word for toledot ishak ben Avram. He uses, he adds a word, sharach, story, description. Okay, now go back to the book of Perashat Bereshit, and it says, "Ele sefer toledot Adam." When it begins to describe the genealogy or the offsprings of Adam, it says, "Sefer toledot Adam." There it uses the word sefer. Sefer means sipur. And there, Rabbeinu Se'adiyah uses the word sharach, which means in Arabic, the sipur. 
So over there, he uses the word shalach, which means the sipur, and I understand that. Every other time in the Torah where it says the word toledot, Rabbeinu Sadiagon uses the same word, shalach. Meaning the word sefer, sipur, is implied, right? So this is a very common uh, phenomenon in language where certain terms are implied. So what we're learning here in the Mishnah is, and this is the Hidush of the Biavu is, there is an implied term here. The implied term is that is, I-E, right? So getting back to the example um, uh, I brought of the, uh, I'm a doctor. Um, you can have a cough uh, for a short period of time, three or five days. That would be a legitimate sentence. By that sentence, I meant you're going to have a cough for a short period of time, that is three or five days. But anybody speaking the language and anybody hearing me understands the word that is. I don't have to say that is. I say you could have a call for a short period of time, three or five days, the term that is is implied, right? So you see how this works in language, right? So Rabbi Abu is telling us, that is, by I mean, that's his answer. I know it doesn't sound perfect because you have the extra word shilosha there. Put it on the side for now. The Gemara will deal with it. But this is the thesis of Rabbi Avu. Rabbi Avu teaches us that Gezelot Havalot is actually the explanation of Dinem Amonot. Okay. Now that we um, understand his thesis, um, we are now going to, and this is, this is the first part. The first part is going to present, and we already see, the thesis of Rabbi Abu in reading the Mishnah. And it's going to um, look at this thesis from three different vantage points, okay? So let's start with the first thing. And give me a moment just to find myself. Right. Okay, so first we looked at it from the textual perspective. From the textual perspective, we understand now the Mishnah, we understand that there was an implied term. The implied term by its nature is missing. That's subpart, you know, one little I, let's call it. Now let's look at it from a slightly different perspective. Usricha. Okay. From a conceptual perspective, do I need this? Do I need to say dinema monot that is What's the concept here? Until now, we've, we've kind of been dealing with text, but we haven't dealt with any context. Everything has been kind of abstract. So what do we mean conceptually? Usricha. Conceptually, this is necessary. Meaning, conceptually, yes, I needed to say It was necessary. And we'll see why. Because if the Mishnah would have just said Dine Mamonot, Amina, the Afilu Hodaot Vahalbaot, but the Mishnah would have just said Dine Mamonot Bishlosha, and that's like Gizelot Havalot Bishlosha. What conclusion would I reach? I would reach, at the, I would reach a conclusion conceptually that Dine Mamonot is a general category, which includes all Dine Mamonot, which would include Gizelot Havalot, but it would also include Hodaot Vahalbaot. Let me tell you what Hodaot Vahalbaot are. So I already explained Gizelot Vahalbaot, a Gizelot armed robbery, Havalot um, uh, injury. So Reuven robs uh, Shimon, and now Shimon uh, brings Reuven to court. 
to pay him, or Reuven can injure Shimon. Shimon was injured, and now, um, I'm sorry, um, Shimon brings Reuven to court to, to get paid. Um, means that a situation as follows, where there was a confession, or rather admission, I don't like the word confession, there was an admission. So um, Reuven, in the presence of two witnesses, he admits to Shimon, I owe you $100. Doesn't matter for what reason. I owe you $100. That's what the oath. What the means an admission. Halbaot means a, um, a loan. So there's a loan. And um, Reuven borrowed um, $100 from Shimon and he has to pay him back. So we're saying that Hodaot v'halvaot is excluded from Dinema Monot. Conceptually, it's ex- excluded from Dinema Monot. So, Itana Dinema Monot, Hava Amina de Afilo Hodaot v'halvaot. If the Mishnah would have just said Dinema Monot, that's a general term, I would say, well, then it includes Hodaot, it includes Halvaot as well. That's why the Mishnah has to say Tana Gezelot Bahavalot. It has to add the words Gezelot Bahavalot. That is Gezelot Bahavalot. So that we exclude Hodaot Bahalvaot. But think about it. If your goal here is to say only Gezelot Bahavalot require a tribunal, three, three judges, Hodaot Bahalvaot doesn't require a tribunal. So how would you phrase a Mishnah then? What would be the way that you would phrase a Mishnah? What would you do? Well, I think the answer is obvious. You would just say, Gezelot v'chavalot v'shloshah. So the Gemara now asks exactly that question. So why not just say, why does the Mishnah say, Gezelot v'chavalot v'shloshah v'shalom al Yisrael, right? And it didn't bring the introductory phrase, Dinei Mamonot, Hava Amina, Uadin, if it would have said only Gezelot v'chavalot, I would say, okay, Gezelot v'chavalot b'shlosha, it's a prototype, it's an example. It's an example of dinema monot, it's an example of a larger category, right? I wouldn't understand that Gezelot v'chavalot comes to exclude other cases of financial uh, proceedings. I would just understand that it's bringing me Gezelot Bahavalot as an example of financial proceedings where you need a tribunal and other financial proceedings you need a tribunal. The high de Katane, and okay, and why would the Mishnah, because the Mishnah oftentimes does this, why would the Mishnah have chosen Gezelot Bahavalot as the prototype for financial proceedings? And I would have thought if it just said um, Gezelot Bahavalot. Because the the idea that you need three judges, as it appears in the Torah, and I'm going to explain that soon, appears in the context of Gezelot V'Havalot. So the Mishnah introducing to us the idea that financial proceedings require a tribunal chooses the example from the Torah where we learned that financial proceedings require a tribunal. So we would have understood that the reason the Mishnah chose Gezalot Bahavalot is in accordance with the example in the Homash, 
but it's a prototype. And as a prototype, other financial proceedings as well require three judges. That's what I would have thought if it just said, Gezelot v'chavalot. And so the idea that we learn three judges or a tribunal for financial matters from the homage, put that on the side, meaning we're going to examine that later. But one of the things, one of the goals that I want to explain to you in the, in the context of this class is the relationship between verses in the homash and halachot that are somehow learned from these verses. What, what does that mean? You know, sometimes we have these types of um, interpretations of verses that seem to be odd and that don't seem to fully comport with the peshat of the pesukim. I'm aware of that problem and I want to address that problem. But for now, just for now, for purposes of going forward in the sugya and um, letting you know that this particular issue will be dealt with later, understand, there's a verse that says in Perashat Mishpatim, there's a series of verses there. This is just an allusion to a beraita that will be dealt with later on, a page away. So that's why the Gemara is not going into the beraita. Okay, getting back to what we're saying. So from here we learn from the um, Torah bringing Gezerot Chavalot, we learn the law of three judges. And that's why the Mishnah chose three, uh, the, the uh, example of Gezerot Chavalot. Okay, so so again, So the law that you need three judges in the case of Gezerot, we learn from the Pesukim, Surrounding the verse, it's a series of pesukim. Havalot, the law, the law that for personal injury you require three judges. Why should it matter if you injured somebody bodily or whether you injured him financially? That that reasoning seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Okay, but as I said, we're going to study that later. So I'm aware. I'm aware of the um, difficulties in the rhetoric, but for now, accept it as rhetoric, put it on the side till we study in the future, in a, in a future sugya. Let's go back now to our point. Therefore, Tana, Ma, Gezelot, So that's why the Mishnah creates this tension. It starts with what appears as a general term, Dinema Monot. Then it goes to a specific example, the specific example is certainly encompassed within the general term. Why bring it? So the only possibility in interpreting this dissonance between the general term is to say there's an implied term that is. And the purpose of the implied term is to teach us this law that you require a tribunal for financial matters. It's not for all financial matters, but rather, are excluded from the purview of that rule. Okay? And that's a way the Biavu understands the Mishnah. The Biavu understands the Mishnah when he was teaching the Mishnah in his yeshiva. Are not encompassed in this Mishnah, okay? I wanna take a short break now and I wanna see if there's any questions. So um, I'm just looking at the side now. Okay. Um, okay, thank you for the 
Latin, id est versus exemplum grat. Thank you. Are there any questions? Does anybody want to ask a question? Um, yeah, I mean, I can continue. But if there's anybody in back of you, Sina, who wants to ask a question. Yes, please, one question here. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just a, qu a quick question about, um, was there not, was there not, I mean, presumably not, but why wasn't there a Masora of, of how the true interpretation of the, or the original interpretation as intended by Rebbe was supposed to be understood? Why did the Amorayim have to kind of come to this text blind and work out what he's encoded? Right. Okay, so the um, let, let me address that question as follows. The goal of Rabbeinu HaKadosh um, had a great challenge. Um, the challenge of Rabbeinu HaKadosh was that the... This actually started Akiva already from the Akiva. He became aware of this and he started addressing the question. Rabbeinu HaKadosh is the one who finalized the Mishnah. But the Torah Shem Be'alpeh was in a state of... Uh, Careful the way I say this, but I'm going to say a word, but don't take it literally. It was in a state of the same way when I mean it. Need to compile. Sorry, Raf, can you repeat that? You just froze for a bit. I think the connection went down. Okay. Um, can you now, Sina? Yes, now we can hear you. Just looking at it. Give me a moment. I'm going to switch uh, Wi-Fi. You just give me a moment, please. Sure. All right. All right, so I'm uh, I'm going to be switching my Wi-Fi because it sounds like there's some issue on my side, if I'm not mistaken. So just give me a moment. Okay, I'm probably uh, no problem. You're going to leave and come back. Yes, correct. So just give me a moment. No here. problem.
Okay, uh, so let's continue. Um, and the question that was asked regarding Rabbeinu Kadosh, why there was no Mesora on the Mishnayot. So the purpose of Rabbeinu Kadosh was to organize the Torah Shabbat Peh. Right. Um, Sina, can you confirm that you can? Yes, hear we me? can hear you now. It just says your bandwidth is low, so it yeah. might cut out again. But we'll try. Okay, I apologize for that. For some reason, might might be worth just stopping the video and and just concentrating the audio. Yeah, if you if you want to take off the video, Rav, that might work. Okay, I'll do that right now. There we go. Okay. Not sure why that is, but yeah, my bandwidth is low. I'm not sure. Okay, let me let me address the question. And um, when Abel Kadosh uh, uh, edited the Mishnah, um, the goal was to uh, organize the Torah Shabbat Peh, as I said, in a thematic fashion and in a dense fashion, linguistically dense fashion, so that there was a set text which would constitute the authoritative redaction of the Torah Shabbat Peh. This, um, this project was separate from what the Gemara did. It was the function of the Gemara to interpret the Mishnah. That's exactly why we have the Gemara. Okay, now I found, now I'm getting onto the more um, successful, All right, so give me a moment to switch. It finally showed up. No problem. Okay, I believe that now there should be no problem in hearing me or in seeing me. Sina, can, can you see you uh, now? We can hear you now. Okay, good. All right. So this is uh, this is one I'm using next week. Um, uh, so yeah, so that's exactly the function of the Gemara. The purpose of the Gemara is to create a Masora as to how to interpret the Mishnah. That's exactly what we're doing. That was a separate project. The first project was organize the Torah Shabbat thematically densely create this linguistic formulation, which is the authoritative formulation of the Torah Shabbat Peh. Comes the Gemara, good. Now let's create the Masora. You put it, you use the word Masora or Masoret. I'm not sure what you use. Uh, let's create, let's now give the interpretation to the Mishnah. That's a separate project. That's exactly what the Gemara is. You just defined it. Okay, let's continue now in our, um, in our discussion of uh, Rabbi Avu. Okay. Going back to the Gemara. All right. Okay. And this is the, um, just one moment. I'm just looking for the place. All right. All right. Okay. So now that we understand how to be of who explains the text of the Mishnah, we're going to be looking at. Ulmai. Ulmai means what is the reason, the legal reason to distinguish between Gezalot um, v'Havalot on the one hand and Hodaot v'Halvaot on the other hand. So Ulmai, if you can find that in the Gemara, which is what I'm doing now. Okay. Ulmai, Ilema. 
Dilabainan Shelosha. Perhaps the distinction, the legal distinction, because until you know, we, we dealt with the text, we dealt with the concept, now we're dealing with what is meant by excluding hodaot vahadvaot from dinemamanot. What precisely is the legal consequence of that exclusion? Ulmai. Do, does the Mishnah mean to say that in the case of Gezelot v'chavalot, you require a tribunal, as opposed to Hoda'ot v'halva'ot, where you do not require a tribunal? That conclusion is impossible for the following reason. Rabbi Abhu himself said that you cannot have a proceeding dealing with financial matters if you have only two judges. You must have a minimum of three judges. So therefore, it's clear that when Rabbi Abu says, dinema monot, I'm sorry, hoda'ot v'halva'ot is excluded from the purview of dinema monot, he doesn't mean to say that hoda'ot v'halva'ot do not require three judges. That would be an absurdity. Of course, it requires three judges. He himself said so. So what is meant by excluding hoda'ot v'halva'ot from the purview of dinema monot? And the answer is that generally, when you have a tribunal, you need to have expert judges. And what Rabbi Abhu is telling us that, whereas in Gezelot v'Havalot, you need to have expert judges, in Hoda'ot v'Halva'ot, excluded from the Mishnah, you don't need to have expert judges. There'll be three judges, but they don't need to be experts. And we're going to explain soon what the reason is that Rabbi Abu makes this distinction between Hoda'ot v'Halva'ot, where you don't need expert judges, and Gezelot v'Havalot, where you do require expert judges. But first, before looking at the legal theory, we're going to look at the textual basis. And now I want to now I want to take the next few minutes to explain to you about Talmudic rhetoric. Okay. Oftentimes in the Midrash Halakha, we try to relate particular laws to verses. And we try to find the relationship between nuances in the verses and the laws that we are studying. So I'll give you an example. The Pasuk says, Et Adonai Elohechatira, you should have fear of God. So that's one of the misvot. Yachachamim note that the word et appears to be redundant. Why do we need the word et? So they say et, the word et comes to include within the law of Yir'ah from God to also have Yir'ah of Tamid Yachachamim. Let me ask a question. Is there actually a logical relationship between the word et and the idea that Tamid Yachachamim should be feared? No, there isn't. Let me give you another example. The Pasuk says, Kabed et avicha ve et imecha. 
The word et comes to include within the law of kibbutz avaim that one must also respect one's older brother or one must also respect one's, one's older sister. So let me ask a question again. Is there actually a relationship between the law of respecting one's brother, older brother, older sister, and the word et? No, there isn't. Most of the derashot that you would look at, they don't present, thank you, they don't present a compelling or necessary interpretation. All they present is a possible interpretation. Thank you. I just received my espresso without which I cannot continue uh, teaching. Thank you. In my opinion, one should not answer amen on the Zoom call because I'm, I don't know if there's a slight delay and it's, I, I consider it to be amen yotoma, which is why I just said the berachat to myself and not out loud. Put that on the side for now. Okay, continuing. So what is the purpose of these derashot? And it, the, the sifra, which is a midash alachan vayikra, is filled with derashot of this nature. The sifra is filled with derashot of this, of this nature. Sifra is the midash alachan devarim. The mechimta is filled with derashot like this. Um, we just touched upon a potential derasha, which I didn't explain it to you yet, but that in the, concept, in the context of gezelot, the word Elohim, which means judges, is repeated three times for three different verses. And from here, we learn that you, you need to have three judges. Is that compelling? I mean, can, can, can somebody come and say, this really is an actual proof that you need three judges? Because the word Elohim is repeated three, well, the word Elohim is repeated three times because we needed to say the word Elohim three times because each verse had its own uh, particular syntax. So what is the meaning of these terashot? That's an important question. Without this, you really can't understand the Gemara. You can't understand what's happening. And, and, and let, me, um, let me elaborate upon this. Um, the Chachamim, they were strong believers in rhetoric, um, which is to say that there is the idea that you want to transmit, and there is the linguistic tool that you use to transmit the idea. Both are important. It's important that the idea you transmit is a valid, correct idea. But it's also important that when the idea is transmitted, it's done in a linguistically intelligent and eloquent fashion. What happens in the Midrashe Halakha is the Hachamim, for example, they have a tradition not always like that. Sometimes they, they institute laws themselves. But let's take, let's take a law that comes from Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, etrog. We know that the Arba'a minim, one of the minim is the Etrog. Etrog doesn't say Etrog. How do we know it's Etrog? Because we have tradition. Torah Now the Gemara, it says Peri Ais Hadar. So it says Peri Ais Hadar. Hadar, the word Hadar actually means a beautiful fruit, right? Beautiful are the actions of God. What well, it says, it means a beautiful fruit. What is that fruit? 
Well, from the Pasuk, I don't know, but of course I do because I have tradition from Moshe Rabbeinu, and I know the Pini Esadar is referring to Etrog. We come the Chachamim, and they try to express the idea of Etrog rhetorically, but the rhetoric of the Chachamim is always based on the Pesukim in the Torah. So let me illustrate that in the context of Etrog. Peri esadar means beautiful fruit, but the hachamim say peri hadar ba'es mishana l'shana. Hadar also means to live. Ha, that, dar, lives. So what fruit lives on the tree from year to year? And the answer is the etrog, because it, it stays on the tree from one season to the next season. What was the purpose of that? The purpose of that was not to prove that the Peri Aisadar is an etrog. We already know it's an etrog because uh, we learned that from Moshe Rabbeinu, we have Torah Shabbat But the purpose of that is to express this lesson that we learned from Moshe Rabbeinu through the Pesukim and the Torah. So the Pesukim and the Torah become the rhetoric of the Jewish people, right? And when we read Peri Aisadar, because it becomes part of our rhetoric, we understand, Peri Esadar, oh yes, the fruit that lives on the tree from year to year. And of course, we associate it with Etrog, naturally, right? Um, this is important, not just for the laws of Moshe Rabbeinu, where Hachamim often times, they have a law that we receive from Moshe Rabbeinu, and they try to connect it with the Pesukim rhetorically. But it's also for, for, for laws that the Hachamim themselves instituted. They often try rhetorically to connect it with the Pesukim. So you'll see a lot of discussions in the Gemara where you like, you know, you can study it one way. The Gemara is now proving this law from the Pesukim in the Torah. Uh, these so-called proofs are really, uh, as I said, they're not compelling and they're, if anything, they seem, you know, a bit odd. I mean, how is that a proof? It's, but the answer is, it's about rhetoric. The substance is there. The Hachamim have the right to institute laws the hachamim have a right to make gezerot, to make takanot. And then as part of developing the gezerot and the takanot, or some of the gezerot and the takanot, they, they, they connect it rhetorically to the pasuk by reading the pasuk in a certain way. So when you have a derasha, it's giving you a possible reading of the text, which becomes the midrash halacha, the formal midrash halacha of the text, right? But that midrash halacha, doesn't displace the Peshat. The Peshat is always there, right? But rather the Midrash Halakha is meant to connect those laws that we either got from Moshe Rabbeinu or that us as the Betin Gadol of the Jewish people instituted to the Pesukim in the, um, in the Torah. I learned this from Harambam in the Haktamat Perusha Mishnayot. Harambam discusses a lot of this. Um, so just so you know, it's not like, you know, a personal theory that I somehow developed, but rather this is part of the traditions of learning the Gemara um, of, the, of the Hachamim from Andalusia and the Geonim, and Arambam expressed this tradition in his Haktamat Perusha Mishnayot. So just so you know what the source for that is. Um, okay, now, having said that, we are now going to embark upon one such rhetorical exploration. Okay, now for purposes of this rhetorical exploration, I'm going to do two things. Obviously, the next class, we're not going to get to it this. I'm going to bring to you the Pesukim and the Torah, I'll share them on the, uh, you know, do a uh, screen share. I'm going to show you what the Pesukim say, because there's no other way. 
to understand the rhetoric. You can't understand the rhetoric, and this is a mistake that's uh, um, made when studying Gemara. The Gemara brings derashot. If you don't look at the pasuk, you just don't understand what the rhetoric is. You can't understand what the Gemara is talking about. So even though the rhetoric is not the peshat, the rhetoric is important, right? Because it has it goes to how the hachamim thought and how the hachamim expressed ideas, right? So I'm gonna in the next class I'll read to you the pesukim in the Torah from where we learn the idea of three judges. And when I say we learn, I mean, we rhetorically express through these Pesukim, the ideas of three judges. And then in the context of these Pesukim, we will be challenged to ask the following question. Should Hoda'ot v'halva'ot be included or excluded from those Pesukim? And that would be, again, a rhetorical question that the Gemara will deal with. So um, I think the time has come I apologize for the technical difficulties. It's beyond my control. Um, but I do hope that in the next class, we have, uh, you know, better technical facilities. Thank you so much, Acham. Really, really. Are there any, if there's any last questions, it's early by me. I know you guys are probably, uh, it's a little later there. But if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to take those questions. And uh, yes, you know. we have, we have, we'll, we'll do uh, one in the physical room and then one virtual room. We'll start with the physical room. Yes. The ideas that 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 Ham spoke about with Drashot is very logical and something that I've thought about for a long time. But the Gemara seems to make differentiations often where something's an asmachta ba'alma and where it's actual a drasha that it makes. Is there two levels to what the Ham yes. is saying over here? Yes, that's correct. Correct. Sometimes, um, and perhaps we will discuss that as well, because I gave a kind of a general, you know, explanation. There's a lot of details that need to be filled in, but sometimes the pasuk is used as an indexing system for laws. That's all. So they would index the law, you know, so imagine you have a filing cabinet. I know now we all have computers, but um, back in the day, centuries ago, when I was growing up, they had filing cabinets and they would index things according to letters, right? A, B, C, D, and, you know, and the filing and the folder for A, you would have things related to A and B and C. Oftentimes, the pesukim themselves would be used for filing certain laws because that helps us remember the laws. So every time we read the pasuk, we remember this law and that law and that law, right? So that that, that oftentimes happened. Asmachta be'alma refers to that, where it's not a question of expressing something eloquently, but rather just filing away the law. And now when we look at that pasuk, we remember, yes, we, I remember that law. Correct. That's asmachta be'alma. Okay. What else? You said somebody from the. Um... Yeah, I think uh, Ohad, do you want to unmute and ask a question? Sure. Uh, thank you, Chacham. Um, if I recall, the Chacham the mentioned that Rabbi Vau's political position affected the sugya. So are, did, did the Rabbi explain that? Oh, I, first of all, thank you. You're correct. And no, I didn't explain that yet. That will be explained further down. Um, and um, the relationship between Rabbi Abhu being. Um, a politically in tune, a man of commerce, a man of politics, will, ex will, will show us what exactly, well, I don't want to say motivated him, but was a consideration in his particular approach. We will see that further down in the sugya. Thank you. Thank you. We'll check the chat if that's okay. I'll come quickly for please go ahead. Go, go, go. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, 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 it's the end of my work day, so I can speak if you have no questions. No, no questions in the chat. Anybody in the virtual room? 
want to if you want to speak if they can just put their virtual hand up there's a little button there or please unmute nope no questions okay all right nobody no no okay thank you so much Hakam. Zakovaroch, and uh, we look forward to next Monday. Any particular preparation for next Monday? Um, yeah, review the sugya and go forward so that you understand the basic concepts so that when I teach it, you already are familiar with the, the dialogue and then you'll be able to compare what you learn from your various resources to how I explain the uh, sugya. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Uh, look forward to seeing you on Wednesday for Rabbi Dweck's continuation of the Haktamatum Asilati Sharim, the dialogue version. And then uh, I believe Avi, you said Thursday, if you want to quickly mention that. On Thursday, we have uh, the Nachala of Isaac Orobio de Castro, um, and we have a trans the translator, Walter Hilliger, um, who's translated one of his works, um, will be doing, a, a, because it's his Nachala of uh, Isaac Orobio de Castro, we will be doing a a sort of an informal meetup and everyone is welcome. It will be open to all um, and we'll be going through some of the book um, and we hope to see you all. We'll send out details and, and a flyer so with more information. Hazak Baruch, everybody. See you Wednesday. Thank you, Afghan. Bye-bye, everyone.